quick, I have a question for you. What is healthcare interoperability? Do you know? Well, after this program, hopefully you will know, and we'll talk a lot about healthcare interoperability, what it means and what it may mean to you. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. My guest is Brendan McCorkle. Brendan is the CEO of a company called CloudMind. I'll start with you. Healthcare interoperability, how do you define it? Sure. At the heart of it, I think interoperability is simply the ability to take a bunch of different disparate data sets and make them play nicely with each other. We find ourselves making lots of analogies to things like Legos. If you're trying to put together Lincoln Logs and Legos and Connects and build one thing, it just wouldn't work. But if you could potentially wrap them all with some sort of coding that they all at the end of it became Legos, all of a sudden, all those three very different animals are one animal and that unblocks some very powerful things. So what is CloudMind? So we are a healthcare IT company headquartered in Philadelphia, and we have what we call the Connected Health Cloud as our premier product. Health Cloud is really an engine for innovation in healthcare IT. So our customers, payers, providers, and pharmaceutical companies build connected health applications, whether it's wearables, medication adherence applications, patient or physician-facing mobile apps, and all of those require a secure place to store data, what we call governance, which touches with interoperability, which is the control of who can see that data and where they can put it and when, and then tooling to help them build applications faster as well. So our customers use CloudMind to build healthcare apps quickly, but also very safely with compliance and governance underneath it. You know, a lot of people talk about the term the cloud, and those in healthcare may have, you may have Allscripts, you may have NextGen, you may have CERN or Epic. A lot of people are working in some platform right now, but they have a fear, like, wait a minute, if my patient information goes up into the cloud, is that going to be safe, and who's going to grab it? You know, and they have this image literally of a cloud where people are pulling it down. So tell me how you can help people to feel more secure about it. You know, there's a couple different ways to do it. One, if you take the analogy of an actual rain cloud, you could tell someone, okay, so if that rain cloud's not very secure, go get me some raindrops. Like, go grab them for me. It doesn't actually work that way. The cloud is a little bit of a misleading marketing term. It's still at its heart a bunch of servers, a server farm, if you will, just like it always has been for the last 30, 40 years. It's just slowly becoming more and more productized. And actually, ironically, for people who are afraid of the cloud, the term was created to make it more comfortable to actually leverage somebody else's hardware instead of yours. There are a lot of cloud apologists, if you will. There's a lot of pretty staunch supporters of the cloud. One of our advisors is affiliated with Infor, has historically been an outspoken, the cloud is not secure. But in the last couple of years has changed her tune. And part of why she's changed her tune is there have been a bunch of notable exposures to healthcare data. They have all been on-premise exploits of firewall patches from what I call the Bob problem. When a hospital has an IT person or somebody in the IT organization who's responsible with making sure that the box where any sort of data lives is as current and secure as possible, most of these organizations only have one. That's not entirely fair to all organizations in the world, but for the sake of argument, let's say they all, if you're a hospital, you only have one. Okay. So it's on Bob, who may or may not have a baseball game for his kid or be sick the week that someone discovers an exploit and then uses it to patch the firewall, which is a very common place to get into or have a block for that data flow. When people use something like Amazon Web Services in the cloud, Amazon has 10,000 Bobs. So there's never a point of time where Bob is on vacation or not there or not feeling well or having an off day because he's got 9,000 people backing him up. Their Bobs are also better at being Bob, if you will, and there's a lot more of them. It's their only job is to take that highest tier of support and security. People are starting to notice that the artifact of 10,000 Bobs versus one Bob is the one Bob shop is the one that is getting caught with the defenses down and the 10,000 Bob shop isn't. 
Anthem, Target, there were a couple other high profile ones over the last couple of years, this ransomware that's been in the news a lot over the last year, hospital systems where people are getting data and holding it and asking for some compensation to release it, are all very well known exploits of previous versions of software that haven't been caught up, which makes it a Bob problem because it's a known problem and it should be on someone's list and it probably should have been done already. The 10,000 Bob shop has crossed that off months ago and they're on to the next one and they're trying to stay ahead right, of the next Right, because the individual hospital also might be looking at budget issues and sure. you know, we got to fix the elevators, sure. we got to fix this, we got to fix that, we can't be yes. fixing this. Blame-free zone, by the way. Very real constraints on this Bob. I have nothing against that Bob or, or Fred <laughs> or Sue, but it is a very real artifact of not having the resources and or the bandwidth to actually chase that problem the right way, if you will. This is Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is Brendan McCorkle, CloudVines CEO. So tell me a little bit about the things you're doing that are going to you know, revolutionize the healthcare apps, how we use these apps, all those things. Sure. So I think there's two pieces. One is an unlocking of innovation for companies that are trying to build healthcare IT apps. For many of these organizations, there are two gates to innovation. One of them is I'm a hospital, I'm a pharma, I'm someone who is going to build an application that touches a patient or a physician which means it's going to have patient data in it, which means, oh God, HIPAA's coming into this world. Maybe I just don't even start, right? So there's a real uh, skill set or yeah. fear of even stepping onto this field because HIPAA and the HIPAA police and, oh God, it's patient data. So there is a outsourcing of the risk from an organization, from an IS department to Cloudline, because that's what we do is make sure that that's wrapped the right way. The other one is what you mentioned about interoperability. Most of these applications are trying to get to an end goal where the data is what we call actionable. It not only needs to be a complete set of data, data from your phone, data from a wearable, data from your provider, if you have kids, maybe some information about your kids or from your kids, from the pharmacy. They're on different data formats. They're all coming in different times and different shapes, if you will, to use a data lingo. The person looking into it wants to see a unified view of all of that data. That is another barrier. If all of the things are different shapes and coming at different times and different levels of security, I don't really know that this pile of data is you. I can't necessarily run my analysis against it. And if I'm your primary care physician, I'm living in a world where the pharmacy knows more data about you because they actually are tracking what you buy at Walgreens as well as whether you fill your prescription. And the insurance companies know a lot more too. Yes. And there's a fight about the rights to the data too. So it's complicated because they're all different shapes. And then no one can really agree who owns the data or who should. So the payers think it's their data. The providers have the data. The law says it's our data. And we're just not following the rules and generating a whole bunch of extra by having Fitbits and all these wearables with our phones. So we're just making more noise and more noise and more noise. And then your primary care doctor is seeing this little tiny sliver, and it's only the sliver that you tell them. It's not a story that's been measured and shown to them. And they're responsible for saying, hey, are you healthy to work on some portal that's probably archaic and slow. Right, right. So there's sort of a mess around all of this world, and interoperability is trying to take that mess and put it down into a language, it wouldn't be unfair to say a standard, although standard's a loaded word in technology, some sort of common, if you will, or at least unified place where two people or entities in this flow, whether it's a pharma company and a, a doctor prescribing the drug, hospital and another hospital who want to collaborate for research, a network of hospitals who want to join together for an NIH grant, are all able to actually pool some data into a place where everyone can use it. And usually that aggregate data is much more powerful than the right. smaller fragmented data. That's interoperability, is actually getting it into a place where you can even look at it at all. And the things that people are building in healthcare IT right now require really sort of a pipe out of that morass that is in one easy to read format and hopefully it better be secure because it's patient data. 
I'll give you two examples in, in healthcare. We have outpatient ambulatory products, all scripts. But the problem is you enter data, but it doesn't really give you anything you want. Because if I get a bunch of hemoglobin A1Cs, I want to see a trend, I don't get it. Now we have a Cerner, we call it Compass, but the latest form of Cerner with Trinity Health. Our hospital was at alpha site, so to speak. Yeah. So I can take all this data and I can use all my hemoglobin A1Cs, but then I can't really get it back into all scripts because they're not talking. So in the office setting, I'm in one computer. I could go to the other computer. I have so many minutes with a patient. What you're saying is you, for a doctor, you're just putting it all together. Yes. So labs are a good example where yeah, to the that. provider, so to the physician, there are two things that are important. Access to the data as right. near real time as possible. Really, I just want to make sure that when I'm looking at a set of vitals and I'm looking at you, they're the most recent set of vitals mm -hmm. and they're your vitals, right? right. Those are both non-trivial things, unfortunately, but those are both super important. And as a practitioner of medicine, I don't want to feel like my job is a data enterer, if you will. You sort of are eating into the purity of medicine delivery, if you will, from both sides with interoperability is allow people to write software, which is an interface down into the data so that they can interact with the data without having to enter it. And then the other side is freeing you to have time to actually talk to the patient right. because you don't have to spend a quarter of your time redoing the conversation you just had in a format that the insurance companies will pay for, that your boss will not make you go do again. And up to seven years from now, if you get called to go say what went wrong with somebody's grandma, you have any idea what actually happened in that right. room. Right. So that's the challenge. And yet, you know, I've always said it, like my kids can play video games. I can use an iPhone. We could do all those things. But in healthcare, you're still clicking boxes yeah. and you're still moving slow. And why has it taken so long? I think because no one's really owning the driving of this trend, right? Payers think they own the data and it's theirs and they have rights, so they don't want, they're encouraged to stay siloed. The hospitals have the data, but their IT organizations are siloed. So they're afraid to talk to other hospital systems, which encourages each you know, N plus one hospital system just creating another silo instead of tapping into some sort of network. The payers are informally driving this right now because the regulatory sort of technology, the regulatory environment, our demands as consumers to talk to our doctors digitally, if you will, are all kind of trending together. Pharma are building solutions in this for medication adherence, as well as clinical trials. Hospitals are building research applications, but the payers are sitting there pulling the strings a little bit by saying, hey, the pharma company now needs to demonstrate that you took all of your doses of your medication to get their reimbursement. Well, that changes everything. Now they're getting paid net something instead of upfront. Now they have to prove that you took all 30 thirtieths of your prescription. They're all trying to build something digital to capture that. Right, and the family doctor has to prove the heart failure patient isn't eating potato chips at home and they're not getting readmitted Well, in 30 so, days. so Walgreens might know whether you bought potato chips while you were buying your diabetes medication or whether you refilled your glucose strips or not. The doctor is prescribing the drug, but they probably don't know as much about the drug as the manufacturer of the drug. But these guys don't talk because historically, pharma and hospital providers, if you will, are not really friendly. They all require, or if you're Christiana and I'm Jefferson University Hospital, if we want to collaborate, I don't want to give you the data, whether this is fair or good or not. I don't want to give you the data because those are my recurring customers. If you make it really cold and economic, I don't want to give you their data because then maybe you take them and now they're a Christiana patient, not a Jefferson patient. But if there is a intermediary, a clearinghouse in the middle that everyone trusts holding that data, that's why we call it governance. We can sort of let Jefferson in, let Christiana in, and then we actually can collaborate. So that's their, their sort of unblocking. Kind of an intermediary with really nothing to gain except getting the job done. Yes. And that can exist, and I think that will be a big part of unblocking where people are sort of at odds. If you can give them that sort of source of truth of patient data in the middle, everyone can leverage it without the fear 
of whose is it, who ends it at the end of the day, do I have rights to it, is that really Christiana or some bad actor? And that may soften that the cloud is scary kind of nomer because there is somebody's job sitting there watching the cloud, if you will, tongue in cheek, making sure it's safe before people go in. Primary Care Today on Reach MD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. One final question for Brendan McCorkle. As we talked about a lot of stuff, we could talk forever actually about this. It's fascinating. What didn't I bring up that you think is really important we should have brought up today? So I think the most exciting thing about interoperability to us as consumers of the digital healthcare ecosystem is we're all sort of becoming digital patients. So companies talk a lot about the digital patient journey and you know payers and providers are trying to tap into that and keep us engaged and taking our medicine and giving us a new portal to log into. But I think the most exciting thing of these technology waves, and I'll channel a little of my formal life as a paramedic, we are capturing all of the signal around the edges of so many things that we don't really understand right now. Someone caught a fib from a consumer Fitbit in the last 12 months. That's pretty wild. These are not clinical wearables. They're almost clinical wearables, and they're not even doing that on purpose yet. And I love Fitbit. I'm not taking shots at Fitbit. I think it's fantastic that this happened. But that's an example of wrapping some sort of biological or physiological behavior with a sensor, and then later being able to go back and figure out, well, now I know what happened. Let me go back and look at all the data we have about you before it was happening. And I think we're going to start getting, bear with me, the body's version of the check engine light on your car. Your car doesn't set itself on fire just because it's cranky for one or 10 seconds, right? Usually the light comes on and then you drive it for another 100 miles and then it starts to smoke. And then if you keep driving, it goes, right? When men have heart attacks, it's the same kind of way, right? You got that pain and the elephant sitting on your chest and it's raining down your arm and everyone knows you're having a heart attack, maybe even including you. If you're a woman and you're having a heart attack, not at all the case. You might just feel weird, right? Yeah. There's definitely a signal that we are not measuring right now that's as clear as the elephant and the pain and the radiation and the sweat for men, for women having heart attacks. Who knows what it is? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna if I knew, I'd probably we'd be having a different conversation about what I do during the day. <laughs> right. It might be a temperature increase from your temple. It might be fluid retention in your ankle. It might be a two pace degree average of your heart rate for the day beforehand, something. But we're now starting to put that net around all of us out in the wild, which is the first step which you have to have before you can start going looking for the signal and finding that clue. All that to say, I think we're going to start seeing some really profound prevention and screening things coming from really unexpected places like wearing a Fitbit over the next maybe even two or three years. It'll be the brilliance of people picking it up and using that data yeah. and figuring yeah. it out. Yeah, so we're finally arming the scientific community underneath healthcare to actually go look for some of those early warning signs which I think is a profoundly wonderful thing that we're just on the verge of. Brandon McCorkle, exciting work. Thanks for joining us on Primary Care. Thank you for having me. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more about the series. Thank you for listening and being a part of the knowledge.